one of the things that the reformers understood well and the, the believers in the newly forming Protestant church, especially having come out of just dead ritualistic worship, they understood that worship was not for us. Worship is for God. Worship is, is for Him. And the reformers, if they had looked at many churches today that design a so-called worship service around entertaining people and attracting unbelievers to want to hang around, they, they would have been shocked at that. Because worship is to draw us upward and, and heavenward, not to draw us to the world. And so we love singing those great hymns of the faith, reading the scriptures and praying prayers from men godlier than anyone in this room. And we relish that history. Turn with me to John chapter 8. We're going to look briefly at verses 31 and 32. John 8, 31 and 32. I'm going to just use that as sort of our launching point this morning. We'll refer to many other scriptures, but there's not time to turn to all of them. We'll, we'll kind of use this as our launch point forward. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. John eight thirty one. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. There's spiritual freedom only found in truth. There's no other place. And today I'd like to talk specifically about the truth of Scripture in one particular area. This is inspired by what we celebrate today, the 505th official anniversary of the Great Reformation. Great Reformation was a pivotal time in the history of the Christian church. Those who would later be called reformers, mostly Roman Catholic priests, they began to really vehemently oppose and push back against the practices and the doctrines of the Roman Catholic church. And at the top of that list, the doctrine of salvation as put forward by Catholic dogma, the reformers were pushing back. The goal and and the hope was to restore or to reform the churches, to reform the Roman Catholic Church. And they did this through protesting many of the doctrines and the practices. Now, ultimately, the attempt to reform the Roman Catholic Church failed. And instead, churches across Europe, led by the reformers, simply split off and became known as the protesters or the Protestants. The Reformers and the Protestants were known for their doctrine of salvation in Christ, that forgiveness of sin and spiritual salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in the Scriptures alone, and to the glory of God alone, often known as the five solas of the Great Reformation. Now, we as Protestants who believe in the doctrines of grace, the the tenets of the Great Reformation, we are to be stalwart in our defense of the biblical gospel We are to defend the gospel at all costs. But remember, during the Reformation, most of the Reformers were Catholic. They were priests. And they were trying to bring sound doctrine into people that they loved and people that they felt were under deception, as many of them had been. And so in that spirit, even today, there's much we could say to commend Roman Catholics. For example, we have many areas of doctrinal commonality. We 
all agree that God is Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. We agree on the attributes of God. That God is all-knowing, He's all-powerful, He's all-wise, He's gracious, and He's wrathful. We agree that God is the creator of all things. We agree on the virgin birth of Jesus Christ by Mary, and we agree on the deity of Christ. We agree on the incarnation, the death, the resurrection of Christ, and His ascension into heaven. We agree that Christ is coming again. We agree on the doctrine and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in many more ways than we disagree. And in fact, in addition to areas of doctrinal commonality, there's much we agree on in morals and ethics. The Roman Catholic Church has been a consistent and staunch supporter of the traditional family as defined in the Bible. In fact, when we think stereotypically of Roman Catholics, what do we think of? We think of family, lots of children, happy homes. And of course, by and large, Roman Catholics have taken a tremendous stand against the horrific sin of abortion. We agree wholeheartedly on the fact that we are all made in the image of God. And as image bearers, we have common experiences. Protestants and Catholics alike, we, we love our families. We, we love the good things in life. We grieve the loss of our loved ones. We love our children. We need friendship and love. We cry and we laugh. We have so much in common. And by and large, it's fair to say that Catholics have a respect for truth and want to operate in the truth particularly the rank-and-file, everyday, work-a-day Roman Catholic, almost certainly raised in generation after generation of Catholic families with strong traditions, family values, holiday traditions, and so forth. And so based on this commonality and, and the desire that I've seen personally from the rank-and-file average Roman Catholic, this desire to operate in the truth, I'd like to speak humbly and with love to Roman Catholics. I don't know if we have any here today. I won't ask you to stand. But if you are, I hope you'll hear this. But I know many more will hear online. And the reason for this is heavy on my heart. In in our city, this is no small number. Just over 30% of our city claim to be Roman Catholic. That's a large, large percentage. In fact, one of our burdens for our Spanish ministry is due to the fact that Hispanics in our area are almost exclusively Catholics. We have numerous former Catholics, even in our own congregation, and those who have believed the biblical gospel is set forth in Scripture alone. And so my, my goal today is to come kind of hat in hand and a, with a prayer that truth will prevail and that you sense my concern and love on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to share with you concerning three truths. The truth concerning the history of Catholicism. The truth concerning the gospel and truth concerning the church. When did you do truth concerning the history of Catholicism, truth concerning the gospel and truth concerning the church again and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. I want to walk through first the truth concerning the history of Catholicism. The first recorded use of the word Catholic was by Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, around 100 A.D. As he used it, it simply meant universal. Over a period of centuries, however, the the word Catholic went from being used of the the spiritually unified nature of the church universal worldwide to thinking of a specific organizational structure of the church, a specific institution. 
And eventually, the Catholic Church, based in and headed by Rome, came to claim sole authority and be the sole access point of salvation, that you could only have salvation through the Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic departure from a scripturally orthodox understanding of salvation and the church didn't happen overnight. I, I know what my kind of weird picture of church history was that somehow after the apostles died, a bunch of pastors all went to the cloth supply store and made some hats and robes and all of a sudden we were all Catholic now. But it didn't happen that way. The roots of the Roman Catholic Church go all the way back to the early church and, that, and because of that, we still share many true and orthodox biblical beliefs. But throughout the centuries, human traditions were slowly introduced, very slowly, very insidiously, resulting in a what is now a significant distortion of the original apostolic faith. For example, the structure of the Roman Catholic Church slowly deviated from New Testament teaching, but it was over a very long period of time, hundreds of years. In the New Testament, church government is very clearly outlined and demonstrated. There are to be elders in every local church, Acts 14, Titus 1. Additionally, we have the office of deacon, the servants of the church who serve the elders and serve at their pleasure. The office of elder and the office of bishop or overseer are the same office. It's the same thing. And we see this in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, where Paul tells Titus to appoint elders in every city and that the overseer or the bishop must be above reproach. Same person, different words. So they're interchangeable. The early apostolic fathers, those in the generation after the apostles, affirmed this exact same church government as outlined in the New Testament. This is attested to in the epistle of Barnabas around 70 AD, the writings of Clement of Rome, same century, by Polycarp in the the Didache, the teaching of the apostles, the shepherd of Hermes. These are all in the generation right after the death of the apostles. They all affirm a biblical church governing structure. The earliest known mention of a more centralized form of church government comes from Ignatius around 117 when he died. But later than Ignatius, you have Irenaeus in the next generation. He said boldly that the unity of the church is founded on doctrine, founded on the oneness of the spirit and not on an organizational structure. But the possibility of confusion became really quite understandable. I mentioned a moment ago that from Titus 1, 5 through 7, elder and bishop or elder and overseer are equal. The Greek term episkopos, which is often translated overseer or bishop, can be applied, though, in a subtly different fashion. That's what began to happen in the church. The earliest form of a bishop identified as slightly different than an elder were these chief pastors in local congregations. And the reason that they identified as slightly different is because the local church met in multiple locations. You had even Timothy appointed by the Apostle Paul to give specific leadership to a specific congregation in Ephesus, but they met in different places. And because of the tremendous growth of the church in various cities, by the second century, the office of bishop began to be more administrative. It began to be more of of an overseeing function, overseeing the needs of many congregations, both rural congregations and urban And they began to divide up these areas. And since Rome was already divided into provinces, they sort of went with that model. And these these areas that bishops would oversee became known as sees. And eventually it became dioceses. And the boundaries of the sees 
most of the time just matched the Roman civil authorities. It was easier that way. But by this, the third century, there began, began to be all kinds of confusion about who should be in charge. Why was there confusion? Well, you had incredibly heated persecution by Decius and Diocletian, emperors of Rome. And what would happen is, is that the authority of a bishop became downgraded if he wasn't willing to suffer for the faith. And these so-called lower-level pastors who were suffering persecution and torture, they were seen as more relevant and people began to follow them. And in the same way, bishops and pastors who were ordained by other bishops who had denied Christ under threats, under torture, they were rejected and rightly so by many congregations. They were were saying, why should I follow you when my pastor went and went to prison, when my pastor was beaten and flogged for the faith? And so the result was confusion and chaos and nobody knew who to follow. Nobody knew who was in charge. And so to respond to this, the church began to look for ways to unify itself through centralized control. And as this centralized control happened, the church began to insist more and more, not just on administrative control, but on spiritual control. Now the church said that salvation in Christ could only be found through and in the official church of Christ on earth, the Roman church. And in fact, this transition to spiritual control is illustrated very well by the third century bishop, Cyprian of Carthage. He's held by both Catholics and non-Catholics as a hero of the early days of the church. And this is because he's really a vital link between proper biblical orthodoxy and the error that began to be connected with church authority and salvation. So let me talk to you about Cyprian because he's a good example for us of how the Catholic church came to be. He was born around the year 200 to wealthy parents, born into money with a silver spoon in his mouth, so to speak. He was well-educated, and he converted to Christianity late in life at the age of 46. He renounced his pagan religious beliefs, and at his conversion, he began to give away money. He gave financially in large quantities to all the poor. Now, that made him very popular with the poor Christians in Carthage, and they began to follow him. Eventually, he was ordained, and he became the bishop over all of Carthage for about 10 years. And to his credit, he was ultimately executed as a martyr in 258. But during his ministry, Cyprian was deeply burdened with a desire for unity. He just wanted the church to be one, to be unified. And so, in trying to help the organizational chaos in the church that was happening, Cyprian set out to give a set of guidelines to all Christian congregations. He wanted to promote unity, and so he decided the way to promote unity was to elevate the office of bishop, the overseer of multiple churches. And that formed the beginning of what would become the Catholic church structure that we know today. Well, his efforts standardized the function of the bishop within the church as a whole, making the bishop the central feature of the church. Here's where they crossed the line. With Cyprian and the bishops, the group of bishops, what they began to say is that this group of bishops, this is the church. And you follow them because they are the church. They are the official representatives of Christ on earth. And all of a sudden you have a, you have a mediator. You have bishops who come between God and regular people. Cyprian viewed the apostle Peter as the first example of a unified church 
under one leader based on Matthew 16, 18, in which Jesus calls Peter the rock upon which he would build the church. But Cyprian took this even one step further, the step of an unorthodox connection, an unbiblical connection between the church and salvation in Christ. And this is very recognizable in the Catholic Church as Cyprian wrote this. This would is, this is feel very Catholic to us. He said, quote, Without the church as your mother, one cannot have God as your father. Outside of the church, there is no salvation. But he went even further into error. Cyprian clearly believed that although Christ provided for divine mercy at the cross, God then commanded the believer to sin no more. And since this is impossible, a way had to be provided by God to wash away sins that happened after salvation. And that way, according to Cyprian, was the good works of the believer. And he cited, using his own life as an example, giving to the poor, almsgiving. He said this, We are restricted and shut within a narrow limit by the prescription of innocence. Translation, Jesus said, sin no more. We don't know how to do that. And the infirmity of human frailty would have no resource nor accomplish anything unless again divine goodness came to the rescue and by pointing out the works of justice and mercy opened a way to safeguard your salvation so that by almsgiving, giving to the poor, we may wash away whatever pollutions we later contract. In other words, you're saved at the moment of salvation, but then the moment you start being dirty again, then you have to redo this through good works. He said that the cross was good for your initial cleansing. And then after, you, after that, it's up to you to continue in good works under the guidance and oversight, of course, of the one official church. Now, if you ask Cyprian, where did salvation begin? He would say, salvation begins at baptism. But from then on, it's a process that the evidence of maintaining salvation is seen in being being faithful to the one true church by acts of religious duty, giving to the poor, fasting. Cyprian said this, how can we possess immortality unless we keep the commandments of Christ whereby death is driven out and overcome? Did you catch that? You drive out death by keeping commandments. In other words, for Cyprian, salvation was not certain until the end of your life and until your lifetime score of good works was added up. That's terrifying. That is horrible. And that is the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church today, that you cannot be certain of your salvation. From there, Catholicism continued its spiral away from Scripture. And the the Catholic Church, basically as we know it today, was essentially formed by about the 11th century. This is when the church split into West and East, in 1054, forming what we know now as the Roman Catholic Church and splitting into the Eastern Orthodox Church, both of which are beset by basically the same errors. That's the truth concerning the history of the Catholic Church. That's just history. How about truth concerning the gospel? I want to dig into the meat of this, and I'd like to show you three Roman Catholic errors in contradiction to Scripture concerning the gospel how salvation in Christ is imparted. And again, and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. This isn't a difference of opinion. This is not me trying to be mean to Catholics. This is not me trying to win an argument. This is simply the truth that Roman Catholic doctrine differs from what Scripture says. Here are the three errors. I want to look at justification, sanctification, and the Mass. 
And we'll put the Eucharist in with the Mass because they go together. Justification, sanctification, and the Mass. Justification. Thousands of former Catholics will testify that the Roman Catholic doctrine of justification hides and obscures the truth of Scripture. The truth of Scripture is found in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. And this hiding of the truth from millions upon millions of Catholics has resulted in a a superstition-ridden and ritualistic religion that hides the freedom of the gospel, hides the liberty of what it means to be found in Christ. That salvation is the free gift of God to those who believe. So what is the Catholic position on justification? They would say that justification is something that happens to your soul. It is, it is internal in your soul, but they would divide it into two broad categories. Infant and adult justification. Infant and adult justification, and in the cases of both infant and adult justification, just like Cyprian taught, justification is a process over your lifetime begun at the moment of baptism. So the Roman Catholic religion argues for justification as a process, including good works, and they argue this from James 2.24, where James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. But what does the Bible say? Let me give you six considerations to answer those arguments. First, the Catholic use of James 2.24 is out of context. It's completely out of context. The Catholic usage of James 2.24 links together faith and works in the process of salvation. James isn't writing to candidates of salvation. He's writing to those who are already saved. That true faith manifests itself in good works after salvation. That makes sense. James is warning those that may be deceiving themselves about their salvation. Those who would say, oh, I'm saved. My life hasn't changed at all. I'm no different. I'm walking with the world. I'm I'm being as worldly and as wicked and as heretical as ever before. But I walked an aisle. I made a profession. I checked a card. I prayed a prayer. And so I'm fine. James says, if you don't have any good works, then your so-called salvation was false. Not do good works in order to continue attaining salvation. Paul confirmed this in Galatians 2.16, yet we know that the person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, by works of the law, no one will be justified. So you can't hang a whole doctrine on James 2.24 when you get the context wrong. Second consideration, justification by means of baptism ignores some obvious questions. Justification by means of baptism ignores some questions. Here's some questions that must be answered for justification to begin at baptism. Why did Jesus never baptize anybody? That would be a good first question. How could the thief on the cross be saved if he was never baptized? How is it that Cornelius and those with him received the Holy Spirit in Acts 10 before they were baptized? Why did Paul say that Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel in 1 Corinthians 1? Why is baptism left out of almost every New Testament verse that explains salvation? Here's a third consideration about justification. Justification is never seen in Scripture as a team effort between God and man. Never. Romans 8.33, it is God who justifies. 
Romans 3.22 says that the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And 2 Corinthians 5.21, very clear that it's in Christ that we become the righteousness of God. There's not a team effort. There's not a team effort. There's a fourth consideration. And listen carefully. Paul calls the addition of works to faith in order to be justified a different gospel using a non-existent Jesus. It's a different gospel using a non-existent Jesus. Paul told the Galatian church, he said, I am, quote, astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. What was the different gospel of the Galatian church? That first you're saved and you keep doing good works to attain to salvation. And he calls the different gospel, the proclamation in 2 Corinthians 11.4 of another Jesus than the one we've proclaimed. In other words, a false Jesus who does not exist. The addition of works to faith in order to be justified is a different gospel using a non-existent Jesus. Here's a fifth consideration. Justification is not a process. It's an instantaneous event. And this is where Protestantism and Catholic, uh, Catholic doctrine split. Justification is not a process. It's instantaneous. In giving the parable of the prayers of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Jesus praised the humble contrition and repentance of the tax collector. And he declared in Luke 18, 14, he said, quote, this man went down to his house, what? Justified. Past tense. Done. Finished. Jesus described justification as a once-for-all transaction in John 5, 24, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, here it is, but has passed from death to life. The past is in the past, so to speak. Probably the clearest scripture that eradicates the process justification view, Romans 5, 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The Roman Catholic cannot have peace with God because justification is up in the air. The believer in Christ may have peace with God because your justification is taken care of. It is a past one-time event that's done. In this phrase here, we have been justified by faith. The Greek verb form does not, it cannot indicate an ongoing action. And by the way, it tells us what's the basis for justification? It's faith. It is faith, that's it. One more consideration. Justification is not something that happens to your soul. Justification is not something that happens to the soul of the sinner. Justification is a legal transaction that takes place in the courts of heaven, in the courts of God, not in the sinner's soul. It's an objective fact. It's not an experience or a subjective phenomenon. If you go to court and you're found not guilty, and somebody asks you, where were you found not guilty? You wouldn't say, oh, right here in my soul. No, you would say in the courtroom. That's where I was found not guilty. Now, changes definitely take place in the heart of a true believer, but that's in the realm of regeneration, in the realm of sanctification, not justification. Justification is its own category. It's a, it's a legal declaration. It's a divine not guilty verdict on behalf of the sinner. This is the meaning of the word justify. Now, what does this mean? 
It means that through Christ and the redemption purchased at the cross, the one who trusts Christ for saving faith has been instantly and forever credited with the very righteousness of Christ himself. It can never be undone. What does that make you do spiritually? Oh, there's no guesswork. There's no last rites. There's no desperately going back to say confession. There's no desperate acts of good works. There's no penance. There's none of that. You've been declared righteous. And it's done. Ephesians 1, 7, we have redemption through His blood. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. And listen to this assurance from 1 John 5, 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not hope, but know. So the Roman Catholic religion is in error concerning justification. How about sanctification? Sanctification, in the Roman Catholic view, has two goals and it's, they're connected to justification because they don't separate them. It's the same thing for them. The two goals of sanctification are first to preserve grace of justification received at baptism. The baptism sort of got the, the ball rolling, but you need to be sanctified doing things to keep that ball rolling. Why is that? Because grace can be lost through deliberate, serious sin. And so you, you maintain grace in your soul until death in order to attain eternal life. So sanctification preserves grace. It also increases grace. It, you're not just preserving what you've had. You're trying to get more of it. So in other words, your baptism isn't just that you got a good start. It's that you want to add to that. Well, how do you do that? Well, the Second Vatican Council gave the nine most important means of sanctification. Loving God, loving your neighbor, obeying the commands of God, the sacraments, especially the Eucharist, liturgy, prayer, self-denial, serving others, and being of good virtue. You could divide those down further into two categories, sacraments and merits. The Roman Catholic religion has defined seven different sacraments, and the more of them you take part in, the more grace you get. Baptism, penance, the Eucharist, confirmation, matrimony, holy orders, and anointing of the sick. These sacraments are believed to literally contain the grace of God. An actual channel by which God gives grace. And it's partially in those sacraments that sanctification is maintained. So you have sacraments, then you have merits. That's kind of really everything else. That can be defined as doing good works that will increase your standing in salvation. And in other words, at your baptism, you got a good start, but we're, we want to get ahead. The idea is to, is to stay a step ahead of whatever might take your salvation down. And so you do good things. The longer the thing you do, the better it is. The more meritorious it is, the better it is. The more credit you get towards salvation. And also the emotion and the fervor behind meritorious deeds help determine the value of the deed. This, this drawing up of great emotion. This is why the charismatic movement paired very well with Catholicism and you have Catholic charismatics because they think that I've got all this emotion now and I'm attaining salvation even better. Oh, this is so different than what the Bible says. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 says that the grace of God is a decision on God's part to be favorably disposed towards you. 
Romans 11.6 says that grace is free and it's without merit. This is so horrible because the Roman Catholic teaching says that grace is a gift of God, but then you have to do good works because of that grace in order to get more grace. It's just starter. It's the starter grace, as it were. So now grace isn't grace anymore. It's currency. It's the currency of the church's merit system. Do work, earn grace. The more grace you have, the more work you're able to do, the more work you're able to do, the more grace you get. So you get on a roll and you really try to do lots of good works because that gives you lots more grace, which gives you lots more ability to do good works. And the idea is to stay all the way ahead until you die and hope you made it. Errors in justification and sanctification. How about in the Mass and the Eucharist? These two go together The Eucharist is a sacrament. We call it the Lord's table, but it's been perverted in Roman Catholicism. It's a sacrament considered to be vital to the maintenance of salvation. And you can only receive the Eucharist in the church. Why do Catholic churches fill their seats? Because you have to be there to stay saved. The Mass is the official church-sanctioned observation of the Eucharist. More specifically, the Mass is said to be a reenactment of the sacrifice of Christ, and it's taken to mean that Jesus is actually present in the elements of the bread and the wine. He's actually there. And the Roman Catholics claim the Old Testament as a pattern for repeated sacrifice, that Jesus is being sacrificed over and over and over again. That's why you see a crucifix with Jesus still on the cross. That's why you see our cross is empty, because that sacrifice was once for all. And there are very specific beliefs associated with the observance of the Mass and it's connected to how you maintain your salvation. The foundation of the Mass is viewed as being in the Last Supper itself when Christ met with His disciples the night of His arrest. And according to the Catholic Church, the Last Supper was a real sacrifice in which the actual blood of Christ was in the cup used by Jesus and the disciples. In the Mass... As the priest consecrates the bread and the wine, the elements now become worldwide, wherever Mass is being celebrated, the elements become the actual body, the actual blood of Jesus. And these now consecrated elements are considered food from heaven that help you maintain or attain eternal life. And since the elements are considered the actual presence of Christ, it is considered fully appropriate to worship the bread and worship the cup. In the Eucharist, the presiding priest once again presents the sacrifice of Christ to God the Father, appeasing the Father's wrath once again against the sins of all those who are partaking in the Eucharist. And once again, the faithful receive the full benefits of the death of Christ on the cross, and so the Mass continues forward, the work of redemption that was begun at Calvary, but it's necessary to be repeated over and over and over again all through your life as a Catholic. To be honest with you, if I truly believed that, I would never leave the church and I would be having somebody giving me the Eucharist every moment of my life. The observance of the Mass constitutes a completely wicked, false gospel. The Last Supper was a Passover meal Christ's blood wasn't given then. I think he would have known it. Christ's blood was given at the cross later. 
Christ's body and blood are not physically present. The bread and wine, the bread and cup are symbols only for the purpose of remembrance. Scripture is very clear on this from 1 Corinthians 11 and Luke 22. We also know that Christ is physically present where? He's in heaven. That's where he's physically present. God expressly forbids the worship of any object. By the way, not just an object considered to represent a false god. The Bible prohibits representing, worshiping an object to represent God. Exodus 20, you shall not worship an image, even of Yahweh. Isaiah 42, don't worship an image, even of me. Far from being a continued event, the death of Christ on the cross was a historic event. It happened one time, and as such, it's a completed work. What did Jesus say on the cross? He said, it is what? Finished. Not it is to be continued. The atonement, by its very definition, is a one-time act. His sacrifice was presented by Christ Himself to the Father. He fully appeased the wrath of God against sin. Hebrews 9.26 rejects the idea that Christ is sacrificed repeatedly. And verse 28 of Hebrews 9 says that Jesus was offered once for all. As believers in Christ, Christians have received the full benefit of the cross at the moment of salvation. From the finished work of redemption. It's done. It's finished. And the Lord's table, far from being some sort of process of salvation, is exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. It's a proclamation of the Lord's death, not a repeating of it. In fact, Hebrews 6 warns that the, the unbeliever who dabbles in Christianity is crucifying Christ over and over again to their peril. We cherish the Lord's table. Why? Because we are justified. Not because we're continuing a repeated sacrifice that apparently is so ineffective that it has to recur over and over again. Well, that's the truth concerning the gospel. I'd like to finish out our time with the truth concerning the church. The truth concerning the church, and we, we have to do this because the, the Roman Catholic doctrine intertwines salvation with the church. When you have errors in one, you have errors in the other. They're enmeshed with each other. I'm just going to briefly mention a few troubling aspects. I started with ten. I knocked it down to four yesterday. Four troubling aspects to Roman Catholic church life which don't mesh with Scripture at any level. First troubling aspect is just the general nature of the Roman Catholic church. The general nature of the church. The true church of Jesus Christ is the body of Christ on earth. But the Roman Catholic Church is taking this understanding to a level never intended in Scripture. It sets itself up as the very extension of Christ himself on the earth, particularly by claiming to embody the three offices of Jesus. The office of prophet, priest, and king. Christ the prophet is represented by the church in that whatever the official church states says, this is the word of Christ. That takes over prophet. Christ the high priest is represented by the church in that there's mediation by earthly priests and the guaranteed permanence of Christ in the mass. That if you're talking to a priest, you're talking to Jesus. And finally, Christ the king is represented in that now we don't talk about obedience to God. We talk about obedience to the church. 
And so fundamentally, Roman Catholics have transitioned from a doctrine of Christ to a doctrine of the church replacing Christ. That is heresy at the highest level. The second troubling idea, Scripture and tradition. Scripture and tradition, the the Roman Catholic Church teaches that the revealed truth of Christ is passed down by two means. The unwritten form, which constitutes the tradition of the church, and the written form, which constitutes the scriptures. Scripture and tradition are seen as what they call one divine stream of thought, that they, they parallel each other and they're together and they're equal the Second Vatican Council declared, quote, sacred tradition and sacred scripture, notice which one comes first, sacred tradition and sacred scripture make up a single sacred deposit of the word of God, which is entrusted to the church. Now, the problem is obvious. Who gets to decide what sacred tradition is? Well, the process for determining official tradition is complex. It involves a worldwide assessment by bishops as to whether a certain so-called truth is widely believed by enough Catholics. That then makes it true. And then they gather together in the the decision-making body of Catholics called the magisterium. And the magisterium is the the teaching authority and is given only to bishops. They and they alone have the right to decide the real meaning of revelation and to subsequently teach it with authority. What does that mean? What that means is that the scriptures are subject to the church's self-proclaimed infallible interpretation. The scriptures don't speak for themselves as the word of God. You have to listen to what the church says the word of God means. They are authoritative, and whatever the magisterium says now becomes the infallible word of God. It's no wonder that in the decades before and after the Great Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church did everything possible to keep Bibles out of the hands of regular people because they would find out that the church was wrong simply by reading their Bibles. You see, Scripture has intrinsic authority independent of the church. It's authoritative internally and and all of its own. The Roman Catholic Church claims that tradition and Scripture are, are equally inspired. What is that really saying? That's saying that Scripture is not enough. Scripture is not sufficient. What did Jesus say about Scripture and tradition together? In Matthew 15, 1-9, Jesus condemned the Pharisees for twisting Scriptures to fit their own what? Traditions. And in fact, He accuses the Pharisees of hypocrisy. He says that their so-called worship of God is pointless. It's in vain, quote, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And He decried them for that. I don't have time to do this for a long time, but if we had a moment... The plethora of Bible internal descriptions of itself about its own sufficiency, it's staggering. The Bible calls itself a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It converts the soul. It's infallible. It's inerrant. It's irrevocable. The scripture proves and refutes evil without help from any other sources. Now, here's the old thing. People say, well, that's circular reasoning. The Bible can't say that about itself. Question, what other authority are you going to go to to confirm the Bible? It is the highest authority. It is self-confirming. That's why the Bible contains hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that you can, you can look in this part of your Bible and 500 years later look in this part of your Bible and find that prophecy came true. It is self-confirming. 
It's self-confirming in the hearts of believers through, who through the Holy Spirit for centuries and centuries have gotten saved and their lives changed through the Word of God. The Bible doesn't need my help, doesn't need certainly a, an organization's help to make it more authoritative. It is all-sufficient. Scripture continually claims to be all-sufficient source of revelation from God. Psalm 119, Psalm 138, Psalm 19, Psalm 111, Isaiah 40, Ephesians 5, 2 Timothy 3, Jeremiah 5, Jeremiah 23, Matthew 13, Ephesians 6, Psalm 107, Titus 2, 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 2, Acts 20, John 8, John 10. How about John 17, 17, when the Lord Jesus Christ said to his Father, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Not asterisk and the tradition of the church. Here's the irony and the inconsistency. The magisterium, they hold that the scriptures are the written revelation of God himself. That the Bible is revealed by God. It's a revelation that says in Jude that the body of truth has all been delivered. It's complete. At the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation that pronounces a curse on all who add to the Bible. And yet they also hold that church tradition is equally inspired, though the very Bible they affirm condemns any man-made tradition as being authoritative. It's self-condemning, self-contradictory. Here's a third troubling aspect to the Roman Catholic Church, the papacy, the office of Pope, or I love the words the reformers used, popery. I like that one. There are many views about the actual origins of the Roman Catholic papacy and they don't even agree on them among themselves. But the biggest one, obviously, is that Peter is the first pope. And I think there's going to be a lot of saved Roman Catholics, former Roman Catholics who go to heaven and have to tell Peter, sorry about the whole thinking you were the pope thing. But they make several arguments for Peter as the first pope. First, the biggest one, of course, Matthew 16, 18, Jesus told Peter, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. A second argument they make is that in the very next verse, Jesus told Peter that he would, he would give you the keys of the kingdom, which the Roman Catholics take to mean supreme authority over the church. There's a third argument they make in Jesus' threefold command to Peter in John 21 to feed the sheep of God, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. The Roman Catholics take this as a commission to be the supreme pastor over all the church. It's a fourth argument they make. Since Peter was the first bishop of Rome, this firmly established both the person of the Pope and the capital of the church as always being in Rome. Fifth argument they make is that Peter is author of two key epistles in the New Testament, firmly establishing his authority as coming from God. And finally, they say that uh, Peter is the chief of all the apostles since he's always listed first among them, as well as being in Jesus' inner circle, circle of Peter, James, and John. So those are their arguments. But not one of those actually holds water. None of them are provable. Now, first of all, someone reading Matthew sixteen eighteen in Greek would never come to the conclusion that Peter is the rock that Jesus mentions. Peter is the word Petros, which is a masculine noun referring to a boulder or a big separated stone, while rock is the word Petra, which is the feminine noun referring to a, a mass of stone such as a bedrock. The two aren't grammatically related. You would never put them together. Second way we might refute 
is though the Catholics claim that the keys to the kingdom indicates supreme authority over the church, there is not one other scripture that even hints that Peter was ever to exercise supreme authority over either the apostles or the church as a whole. In fact, in context, the verse speaks of Peter having the authority to bind or loose in the church. In Matthew 18, 18, same word, same idea, Jesus gives the same authority to all the apostles. So now we've got to have 12 popes. Third, Catholics claim John 21, feed my sheep three times over as Jesus commissioned to, be, to Peter to be the supreme pastor over all. Peter never took that office and in fact he denied it. 1 Peter 5.1, he identifies himself simply as your fellow shepherd. That's all he is. And just two verses later, he says, if you're an elder in the church, never lord it over people. He says, you know who the chief shepherd is? We get that phrase from Peter. It's Jesus. And yes, Peter's listed first among the apostles. But the reason for that's never given could be he's just the oldest. That's, that was one way to arrange lists. But we would acknowledge him certainly as a leader among the leaders. That's a far cry from a worldwide leader among the church. That's a long ways away. By the way, Paul and Peter interacted and Paul never bowed and scraped to Peter one time. In fact, he publicly rebuked Peter one time. You don't do that to the Pope, right? And yes, Peter is the author of two New Testament epistles. By that reasoning, Paul should be Pope. He wrote 13. And finally, the scriptures never state that Peter was the bishop of Rome, ruling the church as a whole, or even having a successor. In all of his writings, the Apostle Paul never once said that Peter had even been in Rome. So today, the baseless office of Pope is considered to have total authority and infallibility, meaning you don't look at the Bible, you listen to what the Pope says. Now, when did that come about? The First Vatican Council of 1869 declared that Matthew 16, 19 shows Christ giving ultimate authority in the church to one person. They ignore the fact that Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 18, 18 about all the apostles. And this 1869 declaration says that the Pope is infallible in his teaching and his guidance. Now, where was that coming from? It was coming from the Pope. Pope Pius IX. He was an arrogant man who desperately wanted everybody to see him as infallible, so he wrote it into church doctrine. We should note the inconsistency. The Pope was not officially declared to be infallible until 1869. You know what Catholic churches thought about the Pope before then? They generally thought he was a great guy who made mistakes and sinned. They saw him as a fellow sinner. And yet the Catholic Church in its own official publications, points to Peter himself as being infallible, and that's the basis for, for a pope's infallibility today. Do you see the problem? Peter is the basis for infallibility. All the ones in 1,300 years after that uh, were fallible, but now he's infallible again. Makes no sense. There's one more troubling element, and that is the priesthood. The priesthood. How dare any man say he stands between you and God unless his name is Jesus? The Roman Catholic Church claims that Scripture is at least part of their authority, but the fact that they've abandoned Scripture as authoritative and replaced it with the authority of the church itself is very clear. And this is most clearly seen in the office of priesthood. The, the priest is the life of the church. 
He plays the part of mediator between God and man. Priests are given the title Father, and they're to be addressed as such by all Roman Catholics. And they would say, by the way, that, well, Paul called himself Father of the Corinthians. Yeah, the spiritual father, the one who gave them the gospel. But Paul never demanded the official title of Father. And going back to the Middle Ages, priests are to practice mandatory celibacy as part of their dedication to the service of the church. Catholic priests being addressed as father is in direct contradiction to Christ's command that we call nobody father. It doesn't mean your own dad. doesn't mean the, the, the metaphorical idea of the father of the country and that sort of thing. But you don't put somebody between you and God. There is one father and there is one mediator. That is Jesus Christ. And by the way, the mandatory celibacy requirement of Catholic priests is directly against Scripture. Paul condemned those who prohibit marriage in 1 Timothy 4. One of the qualifications for elders in the church includes marriage and family life. Prohibition didn't come about until the Middle Ages. Another way to control. The Roman Catholic Church, and I I use the term as the institution, the the ones knowingly perpetuating deception, they have built an entire institution on made-up beliefs and human traditions that are contrary to Scripture. The average Roman Catholic raised in a family where my mom and my dad and my grandmother and my grandfather and my great-grandfather, we've been Catholic as far as we know, going all the way back. They are the victims of that deception. But Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. I believe with all of my heart that by and large, Catholics are seeking God at some level. But the deception of the Roman Catholic hierarchy, especially if it's such a part of a a multi-generational family life that you never really questioned it, the deception is profound. And listen, it is not a difference of opinion. It is a difference of eternal destinies. Because a Catholic who does not believe the biblical gospel will die and be judged and go to hell. So I have just one appeal to make to any Roman Catholic listening to this. It's not to take my word for it. My appeal very simply is to examine the scriptures I've mentioned for yourself. You examine them. And if you have to start in one place, could I urge you to start in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast. You see, when God gives you grace, when He justifies you, when He gives you this glorious grace through His Son, Jesus Christ, it is once for all, forever and ever. He gave you grace once and you will have it forever. It's completed. It's done. It's what Jesus said on the cross. It is finished. When you came to faith in Christ, it is finished. Your justification is done. The the Lamb's book of life has your name written in it and God doesn't have an eraser. It is forever and ever and ever. And our hope and our prayer as Protestants who have a love for Roman Catholics made in the image of God is that you too would come to that once for all salvation, not by works, but by faith. That's our prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the truth of Scripture, which is so, so obvious. If we would but read the Bible 
salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is revealed in the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone, is everywhere. We find it in the opening pages of Genesis and we find it in the closing pages of Revelation and everywhere in between. And Lord, we're just a little tiny church here on White Lane, a few believers gathered together to proclaim Christ and to worship you and to be thankful for the gospel and to give you praise and honor and glory. We're, we're just little, we're tiny, we're small, we're insignificant. But we pray big mighty prayers, God. We pray for that 30% in our city deceived beyond measure that their good works and, and their rituals and, and all the beliefs and tradition will somehow come to their aid at the moment of their death when in fact it will not. So we pray, Lord, that you would save souls, that you would open the eyes of the blind and unstop the ears of the deaf to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we have been saved by faith and this not of yourselves, not by any works, so that no one may boast. We pray these things to the honor and glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.